Well, early this summer, I had a meeting scheduled here at the community center. And so I came a little early to the meeting, got all checked in, went to the front desk. And the woman's name there that checks people in is Kathy. So I was talking to Kathy and I had a couple extra minutes. So I said, Kathy, I've never learned your story. Tell me your story. And so Kathy began to share her story. And Kathy started her story with these words. We'll put them up on the screen. This is how she started her story. My mother was a nun. When someone starts their story with, my mother was a nun. Kurt, I just gave you some material here, man. You just take that. He's a stand. Anyway, um, my mother was a nun. Um, when someone starts their story with, my mother is a nun, you know there's going to be a story there, right? And so for the next several minutes, Kathy began to share her true story of a nun who married a boxer and had a child who grew up to be a hobo clown who now works at the Shoreview Community Center. I want to show you something. There's a point to this story. For the last eight weeks, we've been exploring the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis. And I want to show you how the book of Exodus opens, the book that comes right after the book of Genesis. Take a look at this. Exodus opens. This is really close to the beginning. Now there arose a new king in Egypt, and he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel, remember he's calling them the people of Israel, the people of Israel are far too what? Too many, and they're too what? Mighty. The people of Israel are too many and too mighty. Why does this invite a story? It invites in a story because think where we left off. Those of you who've been around for the last couple of weeks, we didn't leave off with the people of Israel. We didn't leave off with the people who are many and mighty. We left off with the people who are called the Hebrews. The Hebrews. And far from many and mighty, it was one kid with really old parents. How did we get from there to there? That's what we're going to look at today. If you have your notes, I want to invite you to open up this green insert and write this down. How did one child become a mighty nation? And instead of just stopping with trivia, let's ask this important question. Why should we care? Why should we care? How did one child, one child with really old parents become a mighty nation and why should we care? The greatest stories do more than entertain. They do more than inform. The greatest stories invite us into that story and then they give us takeaways that we can apply to our lives. That is certainly true in the stories that we find in the book of Genesis, the true stories that we find in the book of Genesis. Now, to put today's question in context, we need to go back to the beginning, back to the beginning. As the book of Genesis opens, there is darkness and there's disorder and there's emptiness and God gets to work. Remember that phrase, God gets to work. He brings forth light and he brings forth order and he fills creation with Good and beautiful things. How many of you could see some good and beautiful things today? Oh, what a beautiful day. Beautiful day. And as his final act of creation, God creates humans and he creates us in his image, male and female, and he blessed them and he instructed them. He said, go be fruitful and multiply. Now rule my creation. The language is very strong. He says, rule my creation on my behalf. And then God did something remarkable on the seventh day. On the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. He rested. 
All right, now stick with me here because all this is going to come together. He rested. I noticed something about God resting this week that I've never noticed before. I recently heard a pastor share that this word that we translate in Genesis 2 as rest, in its original context, what it brings forth, see if you can picture this, it brings forth the image of a king, the image of a king who has brought peace and justice to his land, and now he can sit on the throne. That's the imagery that was invoked. This king has brought peace and justice. All is as it should be, and now the king can rest. Victory has been won. The hard work has been completed. The nation is at peace and the king sits on the throne. God and his creation were at rest in Genesis 2. And then comes what? Genesis 3. Genesis 3. God had graciously given these humans, graciously given these humans the dignity of freedom, the dignity of being able to make choices What did they do with that gift? Instead of reflecting the image of God in their choices, instead of acting as his representatives in his garden, they attempted to put themselves at the center. They attempted to say, we can make choices that are even better than the ones that God has set out for us. And the result of them putting themselves in God's place resulted in pain and toil and broken relationships and conflict and violence and injustice and death. And wherever people went, instead of spreading the things that God would have them spread and doing the things that God would have them do, everywhere that people went, they spread darkness, they spread disorder, and they spread spiritual emptiness. And what did God do? The God who was resting. He went back to work. God went back to work. That's the connection that I never made before. Let's fast forward. We're going to fast forward now all the way to the appearance of Jesus in the New Testament. Look at something that Jesus said. Let's put this up on the screen. John chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. Never made this connection before. Jesus says this. He's being accused by the others. Why are you working on the Sabbath? This is what he says. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, the day of rest. But Jesus answered them, my father is what? My father is working until now. And I am, what? Working. Why was the Son of God healing on the Sabbath, on the day of rest? Because he was doing his Father's work. The work of rescuing and redeeming and restoring. Work that the Father had been doing since Genesis 3. If you had to put a number on it, what percentage of God's work would you say is a result of our sin? What percentage? Think about that. Think about the percentage of God's work in our world that's a direct result of our sin. You could make a case. You could make a case that Genesis 3 through Revelation 20, and that's a big section of the Bible. It's the section between Genesis 2 and Revelation 21. You can make a case, a strong case, that most of the Bible is the story of God working to bring peace and justice back to every corner, every corner of his creation. Amen. All right, now what does this have to do with today's question? And how do we get this question of how we get from one kid to a mighty nation, why this matters? God's plan, God's plan to rescue, to redeem, 
to restore our broken world involves people. It involves people. Broken, messed up people. Like you and me. If you want to turn quickly to the back of your note sheet, I put something a little bit different on the back of your note sheet. A genealogy. A genealogy. You're going to see if you look there that the book of Genesis, this is the backbone for the book of Genesis right here. It's a family tree. That's, the, that's what forms the backbone to all of the stories. That's one of the things that links them all together. The book of Genesis follows a very particular family line from chapter 1 all the way to the end in chapter 50. Now, one of the things I love about the direction we're going with ECC Kids, ECC Teens, is we're not just teaching young people these, these stories. We're trying to show them how these stories are part of one story, one story line. And one of the major storylines in Genesis is that God is working through a specific family line. When we get all the way from Eve's, Adam and Eve's son, Seth, if you trace that all the way here, all the way till we get to Abraham, all the way to Abraham, you're going to find that God is working in these people. He reveals even more about his plan to rescue and redeem humanity when we get to Abraham. Here's a verse we've looked at several times in this series. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through this line, in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. God's plan to rescue and redeem and bless humanity involved Abraham's family, even though Abraham's line was as messed up as any line you're going to find. God was working through these broken people. One of the two themes that we're going to see repeated over and over and over and over again in families, Abraham's family tree is this. There's a place to write this in your notes. One of those themes is humanity's repeated what? Repeated failure. Humanity's repeated failure. Jason and Caitlin already walked us through the mess that was Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. In two weeks, Dan is going to share more about the mess that was Jacob and Esau and Leah and Rachel. And as we close out this series, we're going to look at multiple train wrecks that were Jacob, that Jacob's son Judah was a part of. Genesis 12 through 50 contains one failure after another, after another, after another. It also, though, contains this. There's a place to write this down in your notes, too. God's continuing what? His faithfulness. We see humanity's failure. We see God's faithfulness. The same God who went back to work when Adam and Eve needed his help, that same God continued to work through broken people like you and me. One of the things that makes these takeaways in Genesis so crucial, humanity tends to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. Don't we? We still do that over and over and over again. Which in turn, here's what it does though, it reveals God's goodness over and over and over again. Well, this morning, um, these ones that I just gave you here, these two themes, you can find those in that resource we've been recommending you look at, bibleproject.com. It's uh, got some great stuff in there. Their summaries of Genesis. How many have had a chance to look at those so far? They're so good, aren't they? They're so good. They, re- they, they do a good job highlighting these themes. I'd encourage you to look at it. But I want to give you two more. And then we're going to be digging into a specific text here today. Here's two more themes from Genesis 12 through 15. One of them is this. The kingdom of heaven extends beyond the borders of the garden. This is so important. The kingdom of heaven extends beyond the boundaries of the garden. For a moment in time, when the king was on the throne, all was in the garden as it should be. All was as it should be. In that garden, all was good. 
And one of the consequences for Adam and Eve bringing not good into the garden is that they were cast out of it. Although they were cast out, they were never abandoned. They were never abandoned. So I got good news for you. In a world where all is not as it should be, God is still at work. God is still at work in this messy world. All right, so let's take a look at the example we find in Genesis. And the example we're going to look at is a guy named Jacob. Jacob is all the way down here near the end of the, the family line that is traced. You know, so this is the guy we're going to look at. Jacob. His name appears again at the very bottom of that family tree in the back of your notes. We're going to look at an example where Jacob's eyes were open to the reality that the kingdom of God is near. We're going to take a look at that. Okay, so here we go. If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 28. And we're going to look at verses 10 through 22. I want to let you know if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to get one in your hands today. You can take one home as a free gift to you. We keep them on that back table as you walk out. All right, Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Quick backstory to this, setting it up. At this point in Jacob's life, very little has been revealed to us about Jacob's faith. In fact, if you were just to look at Jacob... The individual and what we know about him so far from the text, we know very little about his faith. If anything, this guy does not appear to be a model example for us to follow. At this point in his life, Jacob was far from being a shining example. After swindling his brother Esau out of his birthright and then going on to deceive his blind father, Jacob sets out on a journey. And this event that we're going to look at occurs along the way. Let's start with verses 10 through 12. Chapter 28, Jacob left Beersheba and headed towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. All right, here we go. Jacob had a dream. And in his dream, Jacob saw a ladder. And when you close your eyes and you picture a ladder, what do you picture? A ladder, right? You know, with the two verticals and all the horizontals, right? That's what we picture. The Hebrew word translated here in English as ladder doesn't occur anywhere else in Scripture. But when the translators and when the the scholars try to translate this Hebrew word, they come across a comparable word that was floating around in ancient Mesopotamia. And that word described a stairway. And it wasn't just any stairway. It was a stairway used by a messenger of the gods as they moved from their realm to ours. Today, when we talk about moving from one realm to the other, we use the word portal. Portal, right? We think of a portal. And it will not surprise me if we don't see a future translation of the Bible that's trying to communicate the thought here to actually use the word portal because that is probably a little closer to the imagery that these people were, that word's trying to communicate, this idea of portal. That's what the original audience might have had in their minds when they heard this passage. And it would have been a specific kind of of structure supporting and next to that portal. Many people hearing this for the first time in Hebrew may have pictured what's called a ziggurat. It's this huge pyramid, a huge pyramid that has a staircase built into it. Maybe you've seen some of those types of structures. 
these ziggurats and their accompanying temples were constructed in specific places. They would put these in places where they believed those portals were to assist these messengers as they went back and forth between the realms, between our realm and the spiritual realm. And the stairs that were used to assist the messengers of the God were there so that, again, they could move these messengers from one realm to another. Messengers. Moving messengers. What are angels primarily in the Bible? They are messengers. Isn't that interesting? Messengers. Jacob saw angels, he saw messengers ascending and descending from this portal to God's realm. It's very possible that Jacob's eyes had, were opened in that dream to the spiritual realm. And he saw God dispensing these messengers into his broken world. And God wasn't just dispensing these messengers to that little tiny area where he kicked all the people out of this garden where all was as it should be. This wasn't there. He was, he was sending these messengers into the broken places around this broken world. Let's continue with verses 13 through 15. Let's take a look at that. And behold, it says, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you. What does it say? Wherever you go, remember that phrase, wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. All right, this, that expression that was rendered, the Lord stood above this ladder, can also be rendered as the Lord stood beside him. And I love that. I believe it was intentional because our father who art in heaven is also the God with us, right? He's both of those things. And the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he says something that the other gods of that region could not deliver on. One of the reasons that the ancients would build their holy places where they did is they believed that ancient deities were often limited by particular localities. Watch this. The God who was God of the garden wasn't limited to the garden. The God of the garden was wherever, wherever Jacob went. He was with him wherever he was to go. Verses 16 through 19 said this, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord of God is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? There is none of, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head. He set it up as a pillar and he poured oil over the top of it. And he called that place Bethel, a name that means house of God. But the name of the city was Lutz at, the t at first. It is fascinating to do some research on on this passage right here. I had no idea how Jacob at this point in his life, he sounded so much like his neighbors 
What he says here and what he does here looks like what his neighbors would have done with their gods. Jacob refers to the site of his dream as the house of God, as the gate of heaven. The idea of gates into heaven was a common one in ancient Near Eastern literature. For example, one of the titles given to a high priest in Egypt was the, quote, opener of the gates of heaven. So Jacob is, he's, he's using some of these things that he sees in these these religions around him to try to process what was happening. All right, let's, he's still, in other words, growing in his understanding of who this God was. Let's continue to read verses 20 to 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go, I will give and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. So I will come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up as a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I'll give a full tenth to you. All right, with a show of hands. How many have ever made a vow kind of following the structure that Jacob did? If you, I will. How many have ever done that one to God, right? If you, then I will. Jacob, like so many of us do, he made a vow to God, but it was a contingent vow. He clearly didn't have an understanding of the God who knows all and sees all, right? Not only does God demonstrate a lack of understanding about God, not only does God or Jacob present God with conditions, Jacob also follows the pagan pagan patterns of his day, which we saw here in what we just read. Why do I say that? After making his contingent vow, Jacob sets up a pillar and he consecrates the pillar with what? With oil. That was something that the Canaanites did. They would set up pillars. We can, we find archeological evidence of this, of pillars that they set up and it had these little basins to catch whatever they poured over the pillar. So he was again, modeling things that he had seen, even though this is not God's plan. In fact, in Deuteronomy 16, 22, God forbids that his people would set up pillars. Altars were okay in certain situations, but pillars were off limits. And yet Jacob is just missing the mark on all this stuff. And yet, God what? He meets him. God meets him. He meets him in a place that was all messed up. He meets a person that is all messed up. God was not only God of the perfect place. And that brings us to this next piece in your notes. God continues to rescue and redeem in the lands east of Eden. Let's quickly look at one example from Jacob's life of this. You can find this in Genesis chapter 31, verses 17 through 32. Now, this comes after this section. Oh, we're collapsing so much into so little time here. This comes after Jacob had been tricked by a man named Laban into marrying two of his daughters instead of one. This comes after Jacob had tricked Laban by attempting to leave without saying goodbye. Oh, and by the way, one of those two wives stole her father's Laban's idols before she left. So that's just a tiny bit of the backstory here. Genesis 31, 17 through, what did I say? 17 through 32. Here we go. So Jacob arose and he set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock and his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in this place to go to the land of Canaan and his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Armenian, and not telling him they intended to flee. And he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. When it was 
told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued them for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God, but God, how many times do we see that phrase? That's just hitting me right now. How many times do we see that phrase, but God? All right, time to get to work again. Again. How many but gods are there in your life, right? Oh, man, were it not for the grace of God. But God came to Laban the Arminian in a dream by night and said, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So God intervenes. And Laban undertook, overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and not tell me that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs, with tambourine and lyre? Then why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful what you say to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, why have you gone away? Because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid and I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Who had his gods, by the way? Oh, man, what a mess. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. All right. Can anyone find some messed up stuff in this? <laughs> Anything broken? That... And yet God intervenes, right? But God. The whole thing is so messed up. Jacob deceives Laban. Laban deceives Jacob. What we didn't get a chance to talk to about yet that I think we'll be able to get to before the series gets done is you've got Leah and two servants who are collateral damage in all of this. You've got Laban, who's got other gods. And then you've got Rachel, Rachel, who steals them and later lies about it. And yet, God keeps his I will be with you promise to Jacob, just as he did with Abraham and Isaac, just as he will do with Jacob's sons. How did one child become a mighty nation? By the grace of God. There are so many points along the way where this whole thing could have just been scrapped. By the grace of God, God kept his promise. All right, why should we care? Here's why. There's a place to write this in your notes. The kingdom of heaven is what? It is near. The kingdom of heaven is not a place that you have to go find geographically on a map where it's guarded by an angel with the sword, right? It is near. The kingdom of God is near. And most of us are a whole long way from Eden, aren't we? We're a long way from Eden. How many of you, the show of hands, make a lot of work for God? Who's restoring this broken world? We all do. And all of us, in addition to the work that we're making for God, we're feeling the effects of this broken world. Things that we never did. Things that our loved ones never did or our once loved ones did to us, or our loved ones are still doing to us. We're feeling the effects of things that are broken that we didn't break. Sickness, death, evil, injustice. Loved ones who are being pulled away by the serpent's whispers. 
God's active engagement with those of us who are living in this broken world, it is not just something we see in the Old Testament. Take a look at this. Look what Jesus of Nazareth says about himself in John 1, 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, see if any of these words look familiar. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. The what? The angels of God doing what? Ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Does any of that language sound familiar? Later in the same gospel, Jesus refers to himself as the gate, as the gate. And those who recognize his voice will go through it. Later in that same gospel, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, can you finish it, Rick? No one comes to the Father except except through me. All right, why do we not know as much scripture as Brother Rick? Right? This is something for us to work on. I'm serious. Rick, you are an inspiration, brother. Where is the new Bethel? Where is the new gate of heaven? It is wherever Jesus is present. Wherever Jesus is present and welcomed as Savior and Lord. As I was reading these passages, I was thinking and reflecting on these things this week. Something struck me. Jesus is the portal. He's the portal. And we can access him anywhere and everywhere. He's that portal. He's that mediator, it says in the word, between God and broken, sinful humanity. When Jesus walked among us, he said these words captured here in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he says, repent. And what? Believe the good news. Believe the gospel. Please write this down. There is a qualitative, different experience when God works through our faithfulness instead of our what? Our fallenness. That's the invitation that we got for you today. There's a quality. Will God work through our broken mistakes and our stupid decisions? Yes, he will work through that. But that is not the way you want to live, is it? Where he's working in spite of us, where he's having to step in and do but God's stuff all the time. Does God work through our mistakes? Yes. Can God take a horrible situation and bring good from it? Yes. Does God prove himself faithful even when Jacob and his family were unfaithful? Yes. Can God do the same for us? Yes. We serve a great God who can work all things for good. And how much better is it for you and for the lives of those who your life touches to consciously seek, consciously seek to know and do the will of God, to consciously walk in his ways, to consciously reflect his image, to consciously devote ourselves to rescuing and redeeming and bringing beauty and order and justice. The pain of discipline, the pain of pruning, the pain of refining, the pain of remaining faithful, as I've said so many times before, that pain is so different than the pain of regret, isn't it? To consciously say, God, I want to follow you. I want to know you. Versus God working in spite of that. Now, here's one of the things that's so important for me to say before we get done here today. None of us, none of us can go back and undo the bad decisions we've made. We can't, right? We can't go back and undo the bad decisions we've made. And with a show of hands, how many of you have made some really bad decisions in the past, all right? We all have. We all have. What we can do from this day forward is to access this God 
who wants to dwell in us. Think about that. We become temples. We don't need to go to the temples the way once people thought you had to go to access God. We become the temples, the word says, of the Holy Spirit. The language is we become in Christ. We can have the mind of Christ. He can be in us and working through us. What we can do is to pray and to allow God to bring good from those really bad decisions and we can recommit ourselves from this day forward to saying yes to Christ's invitation. And I sure want to be a part of a from this day forward church. Don't you? Instead of being a church where we just point fingers at all the mistakes that we've all made in the past. Let's learn from those. But let's be a from this day forward church. We're challenging one another. We're encouraging one another. We're inspiring another to say, let's go from this day forward. Let's try to have less but God stuff. Let's try to have some more yes, I will, right? Kind of stuff. That's the kind of community I want to be a part of. So then let's do it. Let's invite the Spirit once again to come into us. Let's consciously allow our minds, our bodies to become houses of God, temples of the Holy Spirit. Let's join God in His work. The same God who promised through Christ to be with us when and where, always and everywhere, right? Even to the end of the age, all the way to those events that have been foretold in Revelation 21 and 22. Now, it's so hard to tie things off today. I was feeling like I wrote this down this morning in my notes. I said, I want to be able to Netflix today, right? Netflix where it just, the next one starts. Because I feel like there's so many unanswered questions, right? And we've got three awesome weeks coming up because we're going to be pressing into the word of God. Next week, we're going to come back to now J- Jacob. Remember with this, the first account we read, that's where Jacob is going off in the journey. We're going to read when J- Jacob comes back from that journey and he wrestles with God. So much of what we're talking about today is going to involve wrestling with God. Like the how of we do this, that's going to involve wrestling with God. The week after that, we're going to wrestle with the whole concept of God doing this whole genealogy thing to begin with. God predetermining, God using election, some of that kind of stuff. God having plans and purposes for us before we were even created. What do we do with that? Right? We're going to look at that next week. And that's a big part of this whole thing, right? The week after that, we're going to do a deeper dive into this theme of God working in and through brokenness. We're going to look at the life of Judah and Joseph. You ever compared those two people? Woo! He's excited. So, I mean, just you want to go. I wish we could keep rolling. But even if we could binge the rest of our Genesis series right now, we'd just be getting started, wouldn't we? We would just be getting started. So let's bring this episode to a close with this thought. There's a place to write initial notes. A day is coming. day is coming. When people from every nation will celebrate the birth of our Savior and Lord. It's helpful. It's helpful to know the backstory of how one child became a nation. It will change the world when people, more and more people grasp this, that there was a child who has already come. And before history is done, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are going to acknowledge him with a yes, I will. Yes, I will. That same God who revealed himself to Jacob wants to reveal himself to you. 
And as the worship band comes forward to seal this time with a song, let's pray to that end. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we don't have to Netflix this thing because that's how life should be. Every life, you say, is you know, new. Your mercies are new every morning. May each day that passes be a day where we look to you consciously instead of just looking back going, don't. May we also be able to look back and see that, yep, you worked through our mistakes, but boy, we can sing of the goodness and greatness of our God because you are guiding us often through dark valleys, but you're guiding us. Lord, we want to pray specifically for our brothers and sisters who are just in those dark valleys, who've experienced tragic loss, who got shocking news of heart attacks and and hospitalizations, those who are underemployed or not employed, those who have loved ones who aren't walking with you. But Lord, help us also open our eyes also to see your goodness and your work in all these things. And help us to never, never, never lose faith in the God that has worked miracles through people like Judah, Jacob, Leah, Rachel. Be with us now. We pray that we could experience that open portal right here, right now. In Jesus' name, amen.